The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest today is Kathleen Woodfield. She is an MBA, and she is the author of a new book called Don't Buy That Health Insurance. Become an Educated Healthcare Consumer. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Kathleen. Thank you so much. Nice to talk to you. Let's start a little bit of your background and your credentials for writing a book about health insurance. Sure. Well, I actually spent the first 20 years of my career working for major pharmaceutical companies. Uh, the majority of the time I spent uh, working with physicians out in the field on oncology claims challenges. Um, so I spent a lot of time learning how claim systems work and how insurance companies bill and how to get bills paid. When my husband grew ill... I thought I really understood insurance, and after he passed away, we had over $200,000 of unpaid medical claims. And I couldn't go back to work in a traditional manner anymore, so I became a broker. And what I went out and did was I, my goal was to teach people, this is how insurance works, this is how claims work, this is how they work together. And we're not using this system correctly, and that's why we're fighting it the entire time. So uh, it really came about, I've been a broker now for five years, and the book came about as a result of talking to so many audiences that they would be like, this is great information, but I can't remember it all. Well, we're going to get into the details of the book, but just on an overall base, what is it that consumers think about health insurance, and what's the reality as far as filing claims and getting them paid? Well, you know what? We all, most of us, if we own a car, we understand that if we file a claim with the auto insurance company, they're probably going to raise our rates. Or if we own a house and we file a claim with the homeowner's company, they might raise our rates or they might drop us. Most of us don't realize that insurance is the same thing universally. And we are conditioned to go to our health insurance companies with every single possible claim there is and use it freely and wantonly. And then we're really upset and surprised when the rates go up. So insurance, what my book is all about is to don't just buy what you're looking at. Insurance isn't a maintenance contract. It's something that's there to protect you against financial disaster. And you need to take a step back and think about how you're using your insurance company and what you expect them to pay for and what you should expect them to pay for and how you can be in the driver's seat instead of constantly being taken for a ride. So in the beginning, in your forward, you talk about how much the average consumer spends on health care. Give us a sense of, of what is the size of, of the issue here. You know, the, there's, um, there's information out there, depending on the research you look at in the Department of Labor states, um, that the average American spends between 7 and 9% of their income on premiums and another incremental 5 to 7% on out-of-pocket expenses. So currently in 2013, 
an average citizen is paying almost 13% of their income towards either health insurance or health care costs. And that number is projected to going up to being about 19%. And, and if that, if 19, if 20% of our household income is going into medical care costs, that's, that's unsustainable. As an economy, a, a consumer-based economy, we can't afford to keep spending all of our money in this one area. How does this compare to other countries? You know, it's interesting you ask that because I've been working on an online course and um, we rank um, almost worst in the world. In 2000, the World Health Organization ranked the United States 37th in healthcare delivery for cost, affordability, and access. Um, so we are pretty much the worst. In 2010, we were ranked 11 out of 11 countries for equality of access, quality of access, ability to access care without financial strain. And in fact, it should be noted, we are the world's best innovator when it comes to finding new solutions for healthcare problems. The problem is we have a very, we have a giant gap between innovation and getting that innovation to the consumer. What is the obstacle? Why is that not happening? Well, we have one of, we don't have a national, for one thing, we don't have a national health system. We do not have a coordinated healthcare underlying healthcare system. So as you know, 24 million Americans right now do not have access to traditional health insurance. Not act, you know, they, they make too much money. They're called the working poor. They make too much money to access Medicare or Medicaid. They're too young to access Medicare, and their employers don't offer health insurance or they can't afford the health insurance that their employer offers. So there are 24 million people who aren't accessing health care, so they're not accessing all of these innovative care. And then... You add to that the challenge that we're moving as a nation towards a higher deductible health care plan, which economically makes sense, but puts unexpected burdens on the consumer. And so consumers in the U.S. have the highest rate of out-of-pocket expenses, and we decline medical care because we can't afford to pay for it. You also say that the insurance company profits have been going up dramatically. What role does that play in the whole health care system? challenge in our healthcare system. I mean, I'm not going to lie, there are countries that are able to manage a public, and I mean, Switzerland is ranked number two in the world. They have a private health insurance system, and they have a public health insurance system, and the private systems are in check. There are ways this can be done, but currently, the profits on average, I mean, under healthcare reform, they're limited to having a 20% profit per quarter. I mean, could you imagine if you were guaranteed a 20% return on investment? That makes insurance companies utilities. It doesn't make them – they're very profitable. And that's, of course, I think on page 56 of my book, I listed the president's or the CEO bonuses. I mean, you have all those zeros going to one person and healthcare inaccessible to a lot of the people you even insure. You talk about a call to action for both the business consumer and the individual consumer. Again, we're going to get into the details of all this, but what, what is your call to action about how this whole system should be changed? We as consumers have spent an entire lifetime learning how to exist in a health-managed organization environment. Well, that environment is no longer fiscally prudent. So the call to action is that we have to start taking financial responsibility for our health care decisions and our choices and not think that 
somebody else is going to pay for it. Ah, if I get diabetes, you know, it only costs me $20 for a copay to a doctor's office, and my prescription copay is only $10. It's got to hurt. And, and the call to action is to become engaged in your health care choices. You have what you call the educated health insurance consumer concept. Explain exactly what you mean by that. So if you've spent an entire generation learning how to shop in and exist in health care, it's going to take, you can't just transform an entire generation's thinking overnight. It takes practice to look at health care going forward from a different perspective. And that's really what I try and I call you. And if you make it all the way through my course, if you make it through 18 months, I mean, over time going through online education or whatever, you become an EHIC, an educated health insurance consumer. You understand how insurance works. You understand your role in managing your health care and your role in buying and accessing health insurance. You become a consumer, just like you're an educated consumer when you decide you're going to go out and buy a car. You learn how to do your homework and how to research the differences between cars, and you, need, and you have the tools. An educated health insurance consumer has the tools to do their own underwriting of their personal health use, usage for the last few years to really look at where their money is going and see what they need to do to control those expenses. Now, it seems to me what's happening lately, particularly as Obamacare is going to be implemented, is that the opposite of the normal insurance rules are applying, which is younger, healthier people who would normally think would be spending less because they have fewer claims and they're healthier are going to pay much more, and older, sicker consumers who in the past have maybe had nothing are now going to get access to health insurance and health services and going to pay less. This is not normally the way it works. Are the, the rules of insurance actually, being... Actually, um, women yeah. will no longer... I mean, right now, when I write... I'm an, I'm an insurance broker. So when I write an individual health insurance policy, and if you're female between the ages of 25 and 45, the only difference if you're a healthy person between a female and a male is that you're at risk of becoming pregnant. That risk, women pay more than men. Women bear the entire financial burden of that medical procedure. That also becomes illegal. Now, you do want unwell people to seek medical care. So you can't set their premium so high that they, again, back out of the system. You do need healthy people. Healthy people are often not seeking routine preventative care. So that this, you know, the new system does say if you're healthy, we want you to stay healthy, which means you need to go for your annual exam. It'll be free to you, no copay, no deductible. And we also want you to seek emergency medical care. So if you're, break your, if you're on vacation in Colorado and you live in a different state, that emergency room can only charge you at in-network rates because it was a true emergency visit, so it protects you against expenses. So healthy people, it should actually balance out a little bit better. The place where the, where the costs, and, and I'm in New Jersey. In New Jersey, we've always been a must-issue state, a guaranteed-issue state. So we're not going to see as big – there are only seven guaranteed-issue states. We're not going to see as big of a change in in the underwriting costs. It'll be bigger for other states. But I I will tell you that you want to encourage people to have access to insurance but not price yourself out of the market. You want to set the right rate high enough that people value it and don't just drop it. It's a balancing act. And we don't do a very good job of it in the U.S., 
I mean, having seen what the uh, prices are going to be on premiums in the upcoming insurance exchanges, uh, are the premiums being set for younger, healthier people uh, too high or, or at the right balance? I mean, where do they stand compared to what you just said? You have me at you have me at a disadvantage. I haven't seen any published rates yet on the new exchanges. What is your suspicion as they're trying to figure these prices out now? Um, an individual policy will be uh, between one hundred and eighty and two hundred and twenty dollars for the basic policy per month, um, which is kind of in line with your car insurance policy in a lot of states, um, and. A family policy will be around six or seven hundred dollars. Remember that's several. You have to think of insurance. A lot of people think, well, I have five people. Why do I pay more? Well, you buy five airplane seats. You pay for five times as much. So families get a bit of a discount, but it'll be about seven hundred dollars, six to seven hundred dollars. The difference in the exchanges, though, is that more in keeping with the other developed nations. This is more consistent with the countries that rank in the top 10 nations in the world. The government is going to protect the premium, protect you, the consumer, against a premium that is more than your income. So you're going to pay an amount equal to no more than 9% of your income. So if you have a family and you're raising them on a $40,000 income, the government thinks that you can handle no more than $4,000 towards your annual health care expenses. So even if your premium was $17,000, that's where the government subsidy is going to come in and they're going to protect you against anything greater than the 9%. Very and that good. is okay. in keeping with every other developed country in the world. Yes, there are these subsidies. Okay, we're going to go uh, for a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. Uh, my guest this hour um, is Catherine Woodfield. Uh, she is an MBA, uh, an insurance broker, and she's come out with a book called Don't Buy That Health Insurance. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Everybody needs expert advice when they look to develop their personal brand. Join Rochelle McCrary for The Leader and the Muse. Rochelle and her guests will bring you practical tips and tools to help you build your brand in ways that propel you into greater personal and business success. For strategies, stories, and much more, tune in to the Voice America Business Channel every Friday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time for The Leader and the Muse. And get ready to take your brand to the next level. The way we do banking today continues to evolve. No longer is it just brick-and-mortar locations or traditional bankers' hours. Today, banking is 24-7. It's in the home. It's on the go. It's digital. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King. For a look at how traditional banking as we know it has changed due to a loss of trust, changing economic conditions and consumer behavior, government involvement, and of course, technology. What does it all mean? Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. 
Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Catherine Woodfield. Uh, She is a a health insurance expert. She's just come out with a new book called Don't Buy That Health Insurance, Become an Educated Health Insurance Consumer. Welcome back to the show, Catherine. Thank you so much, Jordan. I appreciate it. Tell people about the website and how they can find the book. Sure. My website is called healthcare-insurance-education.com. And you can get the book through healthcareinsuranceeducation.com. You can also avail it's available through barnesandnoble.com. Uh, you can download it on your e-reader, and you can order it through Amazon. Uh, so it and it has very, one of the things that you and I will not really be able to visualize. There are workbook pages at the back. So a lot of what I'm talking about, there are tools at the back of the book to actually crunch through these numbers for yourself. Is this something most people can do themselves, or do they really need an insurance broker to get the best deal? Um, I don't know that there's a question of a deal. There's no, there's not usually a difference in price when you use a broker. So using a broker is generally in your best interest because you have access to someone with a better understanding of how the insurance industry works and is there to answer your questions. Who, you know, a broker doesn't work for any particular company, so they can share their experiences with various providers when it came to managing claims or speediness of payout of claims or that sort of thing. Okay, you begin your book with a chapter you call You Are Not the Beneficiary of Your Health Insurance. Well, certainly people think that's what they are. What do you mean by that? Right, that's, that's tricky. A lot of people, you know, one of the things I also have in my book is a glossary because insurance works by its own glossary of definitions. And the beneficiary is the person who gets the check. Well, we don't get the check from our health insurance. It goes to usually we sign it over in the doctor's office by signing a form, a universal health form with, that's red with an X halfway through it, and we sign the check over to the health care providers. So we actually don't see the transfer of funds. Um, and so we, don't, we, don't benef- we are not the beneficiaries of our health insurance payouts. We benefit because we have health insurance sometimes. Um, but we are the, it makes more sense with life insurance. You actually name in your life insurance who you want to be the beneficiary of the funds. Or in a 401k, you might, you have to list if you predecease this plan, who would receive the money, who are the beneficiaries of your savings. You have something which is called the medical loss ratio, which is important to health insurance companies. Maybe explain a little bit how that works and how that affects so a medical premiums. loss ratio for, for you and me on the street is how 
out of every dollar that goes in that I pay to the insurance company, under health care reform law, 80 cents of that dollar is meant to go out to cover your care. Now, it might not be my care, right, because insurance is where we take everybody's money in and then those people who incur greater expenses. But 80% of every dollar should go out the door. So under health care reform, if a company has a greater loss ratio than 20%, then they have to return the overpayments, like they, they were too profitable. So some people actually through their employers might have gotten a check and they said, well, we got 4% refund, which meant that you got this amount back. You want it applied to next year's premium. The employer was able to dictate what to do. But what the government was doing with the medical loss ratio, what they were trying to do is say there's, there's a limit to how much profit an insurance company is allowed to make. And 80 cents out of every dollar has to be spent on health care. So what has been the impact of imposing that 80%, 80-20 rule which did not exist before Obamacare came in? Well, this is where my little skeptical self comes in. Um, you know, all I have, a, I have a master's degree. I spent a fair amount of time in accounting classes. You can make numbers be what you want them to be. So if an insurance company did not have a really good accountant system in hand and they literally were so profitable and they were not able to find ways to hide that profit or allocate those funds, they had to return the money. So I don't know that it actually really is accomplishing what it was set out to accomplish because with accountants having really sharp pencils and really good tools, they're able to move money offshore or do things that probably have res- limited the positive impact that this law was in- this part of the law was meant to do. You have what you call the answer to why health insurance rates keep rising so much. What is the answer? Well, the answer is that we have no pain. There's no pain. When you go to the doctor, if my son, you know, was swinging out in the backyard and he flips off the swing, I think, hmm, maybe I'll go to the doctor. I mean, it only cost me $20 copay, so I'll just check it out. Whereas if he flipped off the swing and I didn't have health insurance, I'd say, you know, let's just sit and, you know, let's sit and watch you for a while. I'm not sure I'm ready to take you to the emergency room because I know how much it's going to cost. So the answer there is a right answer to healthcare choices, and it's to engage, is to have skin in the game. You have to be in, it has to hurt. Healthcare choices have to have a little pain associated with them so that you start thinking about how you use your healthcare and your healthcare dollar and your insurance. You're saying right now there's a lot of cost shifting. Explain what cost shifting is and how that kind of distorts the healthcare market. So, cost shifting. Um, is something where you basically, literally, you take a cost and where it was maybe in the past your employer gave you health insurance and they covered 100% of the premium. Now you pay 25% of the premium and the employer pays 75% of the premium. What's effectively happened is the employer has shifted the cost of the health insurance premium onto you, the consumer, which doesn't sound so bad except we receive our benefits in lieu of compensation. Most of us get our, our uh, pay package. In addition, we get benefits. Now, if we get a 6% increase in our take-home pay, but we have 20% of our medical expenses shifted onto us, the net-net could be that we're taking home less money in our paycheck, even though we got a pay increase. 
So cost shifting is when you are able to make it look like we have a lower increase by simply asking someone else to pay a percentage of it. How will Obamacare affect cost shifting? I mean, some would say there's going to be a massive cost shifting from younger people paying higher premiums uh, and the beneficiaries of the older people and the uninsured who are going to get care that having not to pay that much for it. That's a massive cost shift. Um, you know, I don't know necessarily that the cost shifting, uh, the, I don't know that that's exactly how it will roll out. I think that that certainly is possible. Um, I see more, more that the cost of the premium is going to be shifted onto the federal government with these federal subsidies. Mm-hmm. That's, that's m- m- where the, the shifting is really going to happen. It's going to come out of the private market, and it's going to stop being coming out of your paycheck, and it's going to start coming out of the federal pot. Although my understanding is the subsidies start high, but over the years they're reduced so that they become less and less. It's kind of a phasing-in process. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, I caution people about is, well, don't you know, this law was written hastily, and it's being interpreted slowly, and so every year there are things that roll out. There have been parts of this law that have rolled out, and there are things that happen, and there are things that don't happen. <laughs> so where we see, you know, we can't look too far out with cement, with very strong opinions about something that's going to happen in 2018, because six months before that happens, it could not happen. So I, 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 I don't know that that's exact. I don't know how it's going to impact. I don't know in the long run how the cost shifting is going to impact us. You talk about it's important for people to get their insurance policies in writing and not just have an online version of it. Why is that important? So I found this research, which I refer to in my book, where uh, there was, you know, we have so many products available to us digitally these days, and, the, and it, ap- it appeals to our ecological responsible self. So we could buy online through our e-readers magazines. We can get newspapers through our e-readers. We can get books through our e-readers, and our ecological selves like that. But insurance policies are something where we should probably be wor- less worried about the ecology and a little bit more worried about ourselves. And that's because we turn to our insurance policies in a time of crisis. We don't want to be online when the worst things are happening, sorting through emails, not able to find a link, can't remember a password. We don't want to be in some sort of a crisis mode and then trying to go online and find something electronic. And we often refer to our health insurance policies. They're complicated. We don't necessarily, we read through it, we might read through a paragraph or two, and that's really all we can that's all we can fathom at the moment. And things that are complicated require revisiting. The, the studies that I refer to in my book basically point out that if it's really complicated, that ecology should take a second to take a step back. These are the kinds of policies, health insurance policies, car insurance policies, homeowners insurance policies, are the kinds of things that you really want to keep in an organized system where you can know exactly where they are and put your hands on them. Just give us maybe one example of something that people might overlook if they just go online and see it, but they might not get it until they print it out. Well, one of the huge things is the glossary. You know, I always tell my, my audiences, at the back of almost every insurance policy is a glossary. 
And the reason the glossary is there is because insurance companies work from a different dictionary than you and I work from. So, for example, disability. In my mind's eye, when I was first thinking about, you know, being disabled with the birth of my first child, I perceived that disability was me lying on my bed, unable to do anything. Well, disability to one insurance company might mean that you're able to work 20 hours a week or less. Or another insurance company might mean you can't do the job you used to do, but you can do a different job. So the job that you used to be, you're disabled from. So online, you may never know that at the back, there's a glossary that is telling the reader, this is how this insurance company uses this word. And you're using your Webster's Dictionary, American Education, reasonable vocabulary, and therefore you're misunderstanding the terminology in your contract. Okay, very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Catherine Woodfield. Uh, She is the author of a new book called Don't Buy That Health Insurance. Uh, The website to find out more about it is uh, health. Uh, healthcare-insurance-education.com. We'll be back after this. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Everybody needs expert advice when they look to develop their personal brand. Join Rochelle McCrary for The Leader and the Muse. Rochelle and her guests will bring you practical tips and tools to help you build your brand in ways that propel you into greater personal and business success. For strategies, stories, and much more, tune in to the Voice America Business Channel every Friday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time for The Leader and the Muse. And get ready to take your brand to the next level. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Catherine Woodfield. She is the author of a new book called Don't Buy That Health Insurance. Welcome back to the show, Catherine. Thanks, Jordan. It's great to be here. So you have a, ch- a chapter called, When Did a Checkup Become a Financial Disaster? What is so disastrous about having a checkup? So this is really where the crux of the problem is with the American health insurance system. Insurance is designed to protect us against financial disaster. Our insurance plan, most of us have a plan that has a maintenance contract in addition we have 
this indemnity plan. In fact, depending upon the age of your audience, a lot of people remember all they had was indemnity plans and things cost a lot less and you actually paid for your doctor visit as you went along. And there's a balance between having a pure indemnity plan and having, because a pure indemnity plan, there's nothing built into the plan to protect, to incentivize you to go get your annual checkups, to get that pap smear, to go for a colonoscopy, because it's, you know, you, you don't want to pay for that stuff out of pocket because you're like, oh, I'm healthy, I don't want to do that. So there has to be some sort of a balance, and that is addressed in the Affordable Care Act and the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act. All the higher deductible plans now, in accordance with federal law, pay 100% before copays without deductible, and this has been the case since 2010, all preventative care. So that leaves, that leaves a, your insurance behaving like insurance. And we have to stop, as consumers, expecting our insurance company, which is a for-profit, publicly traded company, we think they're just giving money away. We think that they're there just to cover our every financial expense. And we, have to, we really have to realize that that's not what they're there for. So a, health, a doctor's visit is not a financial disaster. It's really only there in the event of a medical emergency. Yeah, so one possibility for people is to go for high deductible policies as opposed to low deductible policies to get their premiums down. Do you think that's a good uh, solution? I, I like that solution a lot, and under the federal law, they sort of defined what high deductible plans are because there are, um, in Maine, there was an insurance policy that was sold with very low premiums that had a $30,000 deductible. That's not, uh, that's an obscure deductible. That's a ridiculous deductible. So, a high deductible is 2000 for an individual, 2500 for an individual, or double that for two people, so four or 5000 And then your maximum out-of-pocket, which is the single most important number in your entire plan, worst-case scenario, how much do I have to be ready to come up with in the event that I am diagnosed with something or have a terrible accident? What is my maximum out-of-pocket exposure? And that's the number that should be, you know, highlighted and circled and put at the top of every plan. Your deductible is the first, however much you spend, 2000 2500 or 5000 but your maximum exposure is $10,000. So if you incur $20 million worth of expenses, your maximum risk is that you're going to have to come up with, say, is $10,000. Is that an appropriate amount? $10,000 is what people should aim for, for the maximum out-of-pocket? Well, they say 5000 Right now, the, the federal guidelines are, are um, 5000 per individual. So a family or two individuals is 10000 Uh-huh. Okay. Um, all right. Now, you also say that health insurance companies are hiding something, uh, which is the need for transparency. What is it that the health insurance companies are hiding? Well, it's not necessarily that I that I that they're hiding everything so much as they won't they refuse on the grounds of business rights to disclose to the contracted recipients of their money how much they're going to be paid so for example if you're a hospital and you sign a contract with a, with an insurance company they won't tell you in advance 
we pay this much for this code and this much for this code and this much for this code and this much for this code. So it's so how how is your hospital if you're running a business and you're hiring people, you don't know how much you're going to be how much money is coming in. Well, how do you set salaries? How do you project into the future building development? How do you run your business if you can't project how much money is going to come in? And then if the contract gets negotiated in the middle, you used to get $76 for a procedure. Now you get $53 for a procedure. But it's costing you $65 to do the procedure, and you don't find that out till you've spent the $65. So states have actually sued insurance companies to disclose payments by contract, and the insurance companies have won, and they have not – they have – been able to refuse access to their proprietary business reimbursement rates. I mean, people are getting paid, health providers are getting paid all the time from insurance companies, so they have a pretty good sense of what they're getting paid. Are they changing it that frequently? Well, you know, let's, I, I often give the example of the local pediatrician in my town. I live in a, you know, in a, in a regular sized town in New Jersey. So let's see, there are five pediatricians in the group. There are so many hours in the day. So in theory, they could see three or 400 patients, let's say, in a day. Well, those three or 400 patients could work for, could be the children of three or 400 people who work for three or 400 different companies. And each one of those companies has their own contract with a provider. So the, so the pediatrician might do the exact same thing to three or four hundred children, but could be paid three to four hundred different numbers. So you can't, there's no consistency. And in fact, uh, Germany, which has a, uh, the second oldest or the oldest uh, organized health system in the world, this is one of the things that they crack down on pretty early on. There has to be consistency of payout for procedure. How, the, how you come to that number, I don't know. But the fact that a doctor can be paid anything from $25 to $85 for doing the exact same thing, if it costs that doctor $50 to do that, then some of the people he's losing money on and some of the people he's making money on. So we need some standardization in how recipients of pay, uh, recipients are paid. You say that health insurance is a gamble, uh, so wouldn't you rather be the casino? What do you mean by that? Um, so health insurance companies have a whole team of people that are called actuaries. And actuaries collect raw data on insurance claims. They're not really interested in what you and I per se do. What they're interested in is somebody who's a 43-year-old female, uh, somebody who's a 36-year-old male, whatever the information, whatever the information is, how many times a year do those people go to the doctor? How much money do they spend? And they develop tables. They know how long statistically in these actuarial tables people will live, um, how many, what percent of the population is going to be struck down by various diseases. And so they're the casino. You know, the casino knows that if 200,000 people walk in the door, that a percentage of them are going to win. A bigger percentage of them are going to break even, but the most significant percentage is going to give all your money and not you know, walk away without anything. They have actuarial tables in casinos as well, 
And one of the things I try very hard during the course of the book, you probably saw, is I try to try to draw parallels between concepts that are, we're more familiar with, like a casino. So the insurance companies have actuarial tables on all of us. You and I have access to our own actuarial information by simply logging on to our health insurance plan and looking at how we use our health insurance. So we can become the casino if we do our homework and we look at our own usage and start to glean some of the inf- So if you know that last year you spent $300 on health care costs, last year is a good predictor of next year. Maybe you spent four or $500. You shouldn't be so scared of a deductible because if you, feel com- you, you start to feel comfortable, I know I'm going to spend four or $500, but I'm going to save 7000 on the premium. I'm not so afraid of that deductible anymore. So a lot of people pay too much. Their deductibles are too low, you're saying. Exactly. And they should have higher deductibles and pay lower premiums because their risk isn't that great. Right. So the way health maintenance organizations worked in, in theory was they, we, we learned from the 50s and 60s with all these health care advances that, that as a nation it was healthier to treat disease early on than to allow it to get to really advanced stages and have to pay for a hospitalization. And, you know, we know that we incur a lot of costs at the end of our lifespan. So the old way of thinking was that we want to encourage you to take medicine. We want to encourage you to manage the care of your disease. Since 2010 going forward, the new way of thinking is if you're sick, you pay more because you use more. If you're healthy, you pay less because you use less. And we're going to incentivize you. We're going to get skin in the game by putting a deductible in place. And if you, if you fight this system and you want to continue to keep a lower deductible plan, we're going to charge you a, high, a significantly higher premium. We're going to penalize you for refusing to move forward with the way healthcare is moving forward. So basically you're saying if you're healthy – and young, um, and, you know, the chance of claims is pretty low, you should have as high a deductible as possible and keep your premiums down, and, and vice versa. If you're older and sicker, you should pay more because you're going to have more expenses. Correct. Which is not the way it's been so far. <laughs> <They're saying that's, laughs> it's logical, but that's not the way it's actually been happening. Right. Now, now we, the young, and, and to facilitate this, you can have access to high-deductible savings accounts. You can, just under the same Section 125 of the IRS regulations, you can put money in a pre-tax environment. And oftentimes I tell people, the money you were sending to the insurance company that you're never going to get back. So if you were paying $250 a month for a lower deductible plan, but you go to a high-deductible plan, and now you're paying $100 a month, take that 150 because your, your household budget isn't used to seeing that money, and save it. Because if you do end up in the hospital, $5,000 isn't going to bankrupt you, but it's going to make your life very unpleasant if you haven't done any prep work. Are, are a lot of people using HSAs as a popular option these days? It is if you listen to that insurance broker we were talking about. Insurance brokers are encouraging because we see we see how helpful this money is. A lot of people like the money savings to buy the higher deductible plan, but they decline to open the high deductible savings account, and then they get all angry when they have to pay for something and they don't have any money saved up for it. So um, I think 
this is part of the learning curve. Those people who listen and heed the advice of their financial consultants and do put money away in a savings account, I mean, it's tax-free money. You can put 3000 tax-free dollars away if you're single and 6000 tax-free dollars away if you're a family. Well, that money can be used for things. That How that money is used is dictated by the IRS, not by your insurance company. So things like acupuncture. Your insurance company may have no relationship whatsoever with acupuncture and say it's not covered, but the IRS will allow you to use your high-deductible savings account money to pay for acupuncture. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Catherine Woodfield. Uh, she is the author of a new book called Don't Buy That Health Insurance. The website to find out more about it is health, healthcare-insurance-education.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait, they just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Catherine Woodfield. Uh, who is an insurance broker. She's also the author of a new book called Don't Buy That Health Insurance. Uh, the website to find out more about her and her book is healthcare-insurance-education.com. Welcome back to the show, Catherine. Thanks, Jordan. I'm having a great time. You talk about how health insurance companies use fear to manipulate your decision-making. What do you mean by that? So a lot of times when I'm talking to people about the financial logic of a higher deductible plan, 
the response that I get is, yeah, but what if I have to do this? Or what if that happens? Or what if I, you know, what if, and, and it's that allowing that what if mentality is what pushes us to buying more bells and whistles, a more complicated plan. And the more complicated the plan, the more expensive the plan. So what you really need is a very simple plan that limits your out-of-pocket exposure, and you know what that number is, and you plan accordingly, and simplify the plan very, you know, don't, don't look for it to be every, a panacea of coverage for everything in the world. And, and when, you, when you really understand it, you, you're no longer working from a position of fear. You're working from a position of knowledge. You stop what-ifing yourself into very expensive positions. Yes, indeed. All right, then you say that voluntary benefits are a misnomer. People normally think they're getting that. What do you mean by that? Well, voluntary benefits in, in most American companies means that the employer isn't paying any of the premiums, that the employee is expected to pay 100% of the premium. And yet these are the benefits that are often the single most important benefits for the employee. By that I mean disability. Disability is often a voluntary benefit. So if you want to buy into your disability plan, you can, but we're not paying for it. Because the employer is not paying for it, it doesn't mean that it's voluntary. It just means that you're, you, you carry more of the fiscal responsibility. But if you're not working, disability is insurance that when you don't have an income, there's money coming in to pay your bills. So it's the single most important plan that I think, you, like, I'm really not so worried about the doctors. I'm more worried about my family. So even though we use the word voluntary and we think, oh, that means I don't have to go to the meeting. But that just really means that the employer isn't going to pay towards the premium. I want to talk a little bit about Obamacare that's coming up. First of all, let's talk about what the impact is going to be on individuals uh, with all these changes coming and mandatory, the individual mandate. Tell, tell us what do you think is going to be the impact on individuals? Well, it's funny. When I talk to people and groups and I say, does anyone here know the name of this law? And people will say, some people, one or two in a group of 30 or 40, will say the Affordable Care Act. I'm like, well, that's true, but it's actually called the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. So for patients, what this law is saying is that if you buy health insurance, there are certain obligations that that insurance has to protect you, and the insurance company can't back out of the contract when you file a big claim. It used to be, for example, before the law was passed, that if you made an honest mistake filling out the application and then you had a diagnosis, let's say, of cancer, the insurance company would pull that application, and if they said, oh, you, you said your mother was born on this year, but, but, but she was actually born in this year, they would rescind your application. They would give you your money back and say, yeah, we're not helping you with that claim. That's now illegal. It used to be that insurance companies could could cap how much they would pay out. So after a million dollars, for example, if you, your cancer treatment continued to cost more than a million dollars, like, yeah, it's not a problem anymore. Under this health care reform law, it's, it's now uncapped. So there's a lot of patient protections that are built into this plan. And what a person should feel more comfortable with is that if I do buy health insurance, 
that it's really going to be there as the safety net I expect and need it to be in the event of a financial disaster, in the event of a medical expense that could cause a financial disaster. Now, what critics would say is that that is adding a huge amount of potential claims to the insurance companies. No more lifetime cap. Uh, no pre-existing conditions can be excluded. Um, kids on their policies up to age 26. All these things are wonderful for the beneficiaries, but it's driving up their costs dramatically, which is why the premiums are going to go up dramatically, which a lot of people can't afford, so they're dropping coverage. I mean, what, what is the retort to all that? So what these laws do, right now we are 37th in line for care in the, United, in the world. We, we are among the worst. We are the worst developed nation in delivering care. What these laws do is bring the United States at least into the game. I mean, you can, the Dominican Republic does a better job of getting health care to their people than we do in the United States. I'm not worried about the insurance companies. When, we, when they come to the federal government for a bailout, I'll worry about their profitability. But at this point, I'm not, it's not my job to worry about how profitable an insurance company is. And I think that's part of where the, the hype out there, it has us worrying about how, how profitable insurance companies are. That's not my problem. What, what I think is important is that if you buy something, it can't, they can't back out when some, the worst thing in your life happens. They can't back out on you. And all these rules and laws are doing are bringing us in line with other civilized nations so that if you want to get health care for your child, there are systems in place to allow you to do that. So that's the impact on individuals. What is going to be the impact on companies of Obamacare as it gets rolled out? So this is kind of one of the more interesting stories. This is the big companies, companies with three, four, five, six hundred employees and, and upwards. They're not affected by this law at all. This law for most corporations sets a basic requirement of minimums. And a lot of people say, oh, this bronze plan, it's not acceptable. It's so low. And yet... Plan after plan has had to be discontinued in the United States because it didn't even meet the basic minimum requirements mandated by this law. So what it does is establishes a bottom line. Every insurance, every health insurance plan has to do at least this. Most corporations have plans and, and uh, people who work for towns and in the education systems that far exceed the minimum levels that this law is looking for, they are in no way affected mostly by this law. What this law, the, the industries that are affected are the working poor, the, the people who are more transient, like staffing agencies, like daycare, restaurants, hotels, uh, places where people earn 10 11 or $12 an hour and they go to work 40 hours a week, and sometimes they even have two jobs and they can't afford, afford health care. Those companies have basically, those companies with the lower wages and smaller headcount are going to be the most affected by this law, and they're the ones who pay such a low wage that their employees don't have access to what is considered by human rights advocates basic minimum essential health care. So yeah. those companies are going to have to change their cost structure, and it is going to drive their rates up, and it is going to, it's going to drive their expenses up. And some of them may go out of business, but that says to me 
that their margins were so tight on every other parameter that they were basically squeezing their employees out of access to health care. Okay. And so for those companies, and that's really the only group that's likely to be affected. Um, Very good. They may go out of business. We will see. Very good. Well, my guest this hour has been uh, Catherine Woodfield. Her new book is called Don't Buy That Health Insurance. And again, you can find out more about it at her website, which is healthcare-insurance-education.com. Thanks so much for being on The Money Answer Show, Catherine. Jordan, this has been great. Thank you. Thanks again, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.